Clark, will you read the charges in this case? Milady. The charges are before you. The baby boomers have failed to fulfill their duty as trustees of the plant to the detriment of generations X and Y as their natural <coughs> beneficiaries. The statement of offence is as set out, the particulars are as set out. There are numerous additional charges of which counsel and witnesses are aware. Clark needs briefly to mention that in these straitened times, justice is now sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> And you will find, Milady, that behind you are the sponsors. We regret this. <laughs> we regret this development. Milady, as you know, I've been in this clocking business for some generations, and we've never seen this before. My lady, we apologize. There will, Milady, also, in another distasteful innovation, be the involvement not of the jury, Milady, who are properly here but of what I believe is called the public. <laughs> and there will be some modern effort to engage them, lady, later on, but you will have left, lady. <laughs> that is all for now. Thank you, Clark. Uh, before I start the uh, pro proceedings, uh, I need to remind both of the legal teams uh, that there are now strict time limits that they must adhere to. As you will be aware, this is a new government ruling to cut legal costs. <laughs> My clerk is very alive to these new rules and he will uh, keep the time. I will be very strict with anybody who goes over time. If there are any points, any legal points, I will refer these to my clerk and his rulings will be final. Uh, Mr. Hermer, uh, is the uh, prosecution case ready? My lady, it is. Then please proceed. My lady, members of the jury, we sit in this elegant courtroom today because of the prudence, the hard work, and the generosity of the many generations that preceded the defendant, the baby boomers. They all well understood the existence of a solemn contract, a contract obliging a living generation to seek not only its own pleasure, but to secure a better world for those who follow them. Great seats of learning were only created because it was recognised that the hallmark of any civilization is not simply what is done for today, but for tomorrow. This contract, this cord linking one generation to another, the dead to the living and the living to the yet to be born, forms the very fabric of a decent society. Now, my lady, members of the jury, there should be no generation more aware of the existence of this contract 
than the baby boomers. They are the direct descendants of a generation in which tens of thousands made the ultimate sacrifice. And those who survived strived thereafter to put in place permanent institutions to secure a better future for all. The creation of a national health service, a great increase in social housing, a drive for full employment, greater accessibility to education, and not just education, free education, irrespective of social class. And that generation also understood the importance of collective action to meet the great challenges of the age. The creation of the United Nations, the signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, laws designed to protect human dignity in all its forms, the right to education, to welfare, to safety and security. What an extraordinary legacy, members of the jury. What an extraordinary legacy the baby boomers were handed. Now, the simple issue, members of the jury, for you to decide in this case is whether the defendants have discharged their obligations or whether they have instead squandered their inheritance to the detriment of those who follow. In short, are they in breach of their contract? Have they breached the duty of care that they owe to subsequent generations? Now, this is a task, members of the jury, for you and you alone. But let me help you, if I may, by giving you some facts upon which you may base your verdict. Let me start with the environment, perhaps the most precious and certainly the most delicate element of the legacy. The last 30 years have been the warmest in the last 1,400. Our glaciers lose about 275 billion tonnes of ice each year. By 2050, the Arctic Sea will be ice-free in summers. In the UK, our temperatures rise about a degree a year. The seven warmest years in the last decade, members have fallen in the last century, have fallen in the last decade. And the wettest have all occurred since 2000. By the end of the century, members of the jury, sea levels in this country could be 82 centimetres higher. Now, that would be devastating news, not simply to those manning the sandbags today in Somerset, but potentially 1.2 million additional households in this country. And all of this, all of this, members of the jury, caused by human activity, by our seemingly insatiable desire to consume fossil fuel, leading to annual global carbon emissions five times higher than 1950. And whilst this country has signed plenty of initiatives, no doubt my learned friends will wax lyrical about many of them, and whilst politicians queue up to hug a husky, the record is somewhat different. We are the seventh largest emitter of carbons in the world, the first by, re by reference to population size. This country emits 60 million I beg your pardon, this country of 60 million emits more carbon dioxide than 472 million people living in Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan and Vietnam combined. That's our planet, members of the jury, and you'll hear in more detail from witnesses about the effect upon it. What though of the economy? 
What have the baby boomers done about the economy? Well, there is no doubt that they have been successful in becoming rich. GDP has risen from 3.4 trillion in 1970 to 73.5 trillion last year. Where, though, members of the jury, has that money gone? Who has benefited from that money? Let me give you some more facts. The lower half of the world's population possesses barely 1% of the global wealth, whilst the richest 1% account for 46%. One billion, one billion members of the jury, people on this planet are exposed to basic food insecurity. In the United Kingdom, 80% of the nation's wealth is owned by baby boomers. The richest households in this country have over 850 times more wealth than the poorest. In 2011, 3 million people experienced material deprivation. Members of the jury, that is 5% of our population. 3.3 million people aged between 20 and 34 are still living at home. That's an increase of 25% since 1996. And 5,000 people a year are made homeless. Housing in some areas has become unaffordable to all but bankers looking for a second home or foreign investors buying a property as an empty asset, a trend, members of the jury, that now accounts for 60% of housing sales in central London. We are now at a stage where most ordinary people put their details into an estate agent's website. They're offered a garage. All of this... All of this in the context of a culture of bank bonuses continuing to flourish, notwithstanding what the banks did to our economy. Avarice that would cause Gordon Gecko to blush. And a context in which a corporation like Amazon, not a sponsor, <laughs> can report sales of £3.5 billion pounds yet pay 1.8 million in tax. Now, you may think, members of the jury, a matter for you, but you may think it's not the baby boomers who are paying this price. 2010 research, members of the jury, showed that 73% of Britons between the ages of 26 and 30 felt that they were experiencing a quarter-life crisis. And you can hardly blame them graduate unemployment at the highest level for a generation, and those are the lucky ones, because at £8,000 a year average, it's only the lucky ones who feel they can afford to go to university in the first place. And it's even bleaker if you don't, because it's a 50% increase in the last decade for unemployment <coughs> if you're aged between 16 and 24. Members of the jury, things have got so bad people think that Russell Brand is starting to make sense. <laughs> now, you're going to hear a defence case put with elegance and sophistication, because if it is one thing the baby boomers can do, they can spin. But members, members of the jury, it will be our case, based upon evidence, facts and cold analysis, that once you have considered the prosecution case and balanced it with that of the defence, you will be compelled to convict. My lady, those are our solutions. Thank you. 
Santo will call our first witness. Thank you. The prosecution calls Mr. Bob Ward. <coughs> Mr. Ward, I want to ask you some questions about climate change. Now, we've heard some pretty scary facts already about global warming, but can you tell me this? Is man-made climate change really happening? So man-made climate change is based on <coughs> fundamental physics that we've understood for a long time. It's now been... 150 years since the scientist John Tyndall first proved in the laboratory that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It's been more than 100 years since Thant Arrhenius did the first calculations of how much the Earth would warm if you filled the uh, atmosphere with carbon dioxide by burning coal. It's been 50 years since we started measuring carbon dioxide levels going up in the atmosphere, and it's been more than 30 years since we started measuring global average temperature going up. The last report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded, and this is the world's most authoritative source on the science of climate change, concluded that it was 95% probable that the rise in global temperature that we've seen since, the 19, since 1950 is down to man-made activities, and that's primarily the burning of fossil fuels and deforestation. Frankly, if I were uh, a judge, I would think it was beyond reasonable doubt now that humans are responsible for man-made climate change. So that sounds pretty conclusive, but what risks does this climate change present? So since 1950, global temperature has increased by about 0.7 degrees uh, centigrade. Now, that doesn't sound very much, but that's a global average. If you think the difference between today's temperature and the average temperature during the last ice age was about 5 degrees. So we're heading at the moment, if we carry on with greenhouse gas emissions on the current path, that by the end of this century, we could see temperatures above 2 degrees. We haven't seen temperatures on this planet that are two degrees higher than pre-industrial levels for three million years. That's longer than humans have been around as a species. The kind of world we're creating will be one of incredible risks. Let me just give you one fact. The last time it was two degrees warmer than pre-industrial was about 125,000 years ago during the last warm period in in the Ice Age. At that point, the... uh, Polar ice caps were much smaller, and the global sea level was about 5 to 10 metres higher than today. That's the kind of world that is being created for future generations. They're the kind of risks that are being created. And so what happens if we get this 2 degree rise in temperature? Will we be able to reverse that? It's beyond our uh, experience as a species. If I, as I described, 5 to 10 metres, if you think about it, about 250 million people currently live within a couple of metres of uh, sea level around the world. If you're, trying, if you're going to displace that many people, you're talking about a world in which prosperity and peace is probably something that's unlikely to happen. You're going to be talking about a world in which you're going to get mass migration hundreds of millions of people. That's what we know from history is that that could lead to global conflict, the kind of world in which it would be impossible to think of of prosperity and peace. And that is the kind of world that's being created for future generations because the carbon dioxide that is being produced at the moment and has been produced for the last few decades by the baby boomers is going to stay in the atmosphere for hundreds of years and the consequences are going to be dealt with by generations, future generations for hundreds of years. 
You say that's the kind of world that's being created for future generations. How has that been created? Well, the climate responds to increases in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. It responds relatively slowly. Even if we stopped emitting all greenhouse gases today, for the next couple of decades at least, the earth would continue to warm and the climate would continue to change. At the moment, we are on a path of increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Since the end of the Second World War, our annual greenhouse gas emissions have been going up, up, up and up. And we're now emitting about 50 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every single year. The baby boomer generations have been in charge for the period during which we have been emitting the most. They're aged 50 to 68 now. They're in charge of government. They're in charge of industry. They're in charge all around the world. They have overseen a frankly irresponsible and a hugely risky uh, process of pumping huge amounts of pollution into the atmosphere. They have been doing it in order to enjoy the benefits of energy and they've been leaving their children, their grandchildren and future generations to deal with the consequences. It's frankly like watching a crime in slow motion. But the defence will say that far from being responsible for this state of affairs, the baby boomers are the generation which brought the issue of climate change to the fore, which made it the focus of foreign and domestic policy. What do you say about that? The baby boomers have been caught red-handed in the act, but they haven't stopped the crime, in my view. As I said, greenhouse gas emissions have been going up, up and up, even after they signed an international treaty where they were supposed to reduce their emissions, supposed to start reducing the behaviour that was creating the risks. They haven't. They've failed. And what's more, they've built into our current economy and our current systems the means by which it becomes very difficult to reduce the risk so that they enjoy all the benefits. They've made us much more dependent on fossil fuels, which are the primary source of carbon dioxide. They're making it even more expensive to get off fossil fuels and, and to invest in alternative forms of energy, low-carbon forms that don't create greenhouse gases. But let me give you an example. They've, they've rigged the system. They make decisions about future investments using economic models that are built on something called discounting. The discount rate depends on two factors. What the current generation think future generations are going to be earning, and they think you're all going to be so rich in the future that you'll be able to spend your way out of any amount of trouble. Secondly, they've made a decision about how much they think future generations are worth. And what they have done is chosen rates that mean that, frankly, the further on you are in the future, the less you matter in a decision made today. It's, it's a discrimination based on date of birth, which actually is completely indefensible in my view. And so, Mr Ward, one final question. In your opinion, who bears more responsibility for the current climate change problems? Is it the baby boomers or is it the generations that follow? The baby boomers have overseen where we are today. Their age is 50 to 68 now. They're at the top of government, top of industry. They are in charge. They are responsible for where we are today. And it is their children, their grandchildren and future generations who are going to pay the price for their crime. Thank you. No further questions, my lady. Can you call your a second witness? Uh, my lady, we can, or we can leave it to the defence to cross-examine now. We're in my lady's, my lady's hands.
We're happy to cross-examine now, my lady. Okay. Please do so. Mr. Ward, um, I want to ask you a few questions. The first thing I want to make clear is that it is not our intention to attempt to use cheap forensic tricks <laughs> or to try to trip you up in any way. Now, you work, do you not? <laughs> you work, do you not, for something called the Grantham Institute? Yes. And that is an institute, which, if I may use colloquial languages, is hell-bent on pushing the climate change argument. I hope that's not impolite. I think you're... Uh, is that a euphemism for conducting academic research? <laughs> <laughs> if you like, yes. <laughs> I want to ask you who the director of your institute is. What's his or her name? Well, the chairman is Lord Stern of Brentford, Nicholas Stern, the economist. That's good enough for me. What year was Lord Stern born? Uh, I don't know. I believe he might be on the edge of the baby boomer generation. Well, I'm grateful that you've made that candid admission. <laughs> because I'm going to put to you that Lord Stern was born in 1946, right at the start of the generation that you castigate. Do you accept that? I do. Mm. <laughs> I'm grateful. Now, when were you born, Mr. Ward? 1966, I think, just outside the baby boom. <laughs> now, I know that you've come here to ensure that a fair trial is conducted. Who is more guilty of climate despoilation? You? Or Lord Stern? I would imagine that because he's lived longer than me, <laughs> he may have been more responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change. But it comes to this, does it not, that your whole case involves castigating a generation that is no more guilty than the generation that preceded it, or I suggest the generation that followed it. I'm afraid the evidence says otherwise. When you say castigate, I would prefer the words holding responsible. The generations since the Second World War have overseen a massive increase in annual emissions of greenhouse gases and have contributed far more to the uh, level, the rise in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere than generations that preceded them. Now, the last thing I want to do is to throw statistics at you, and I'm not going to do that. But you believe, do you not, that the scientific case against climate change uh, sceptics is unanswerable? I believe the case put by climate change sceptics is completely answerable with science. The fact is, climate change sceptics who argue that humans are not responsible for climate change are arguing against more than 150 years of scientific evidence. Indeed, you have said not that long ago uh, that there is irrefutable, I use your words, irrefutable evidence that the record rainfall and storm surges are caused by climate change. Is that right? I'm not sure I used the word irrefutable, oh, yeah. but I would, use, I would use the example of the recent flooding, and, which is due to record rainfall in the UK, as being similar to the case 
linking uh, smoking with lung cancer, that on the probability of evidence, you may not be able to prove that any single case of lung cancer is due to smoking, but the weight of evidence shows that the risks run, that the more uh, greenhouse gases you put into the atmosphere, the more uh, the temperature rises, and we know from basic physics that it holds more water, you get heavier rainfall. You're aware, are you not, that a reputable scientist, no less an academic than Professor Matt Collins at Exeter University, professor in climate systems, says that these surges were caused by the jet stream moving south for reasons that are unknown. You're aware of that view? I am. He's talking about whether you can categorically say that the storms that brought the rain can be linked to climate change. And he's arguing that you cannot categorically say that. But as I said, I come back to the analogy with smoking and lung cancer. It is not a coincidence that from the year 2000 onwards, the UK has had four of its five wettest years on record and its seven warmest years on record. You don't have to know very much about physics to know that the warmer the atmosphere is, the more water it holds and the more intense rainfall. And indeed, that's what we're seeing all around the world is an increase in intense rainfall. Let me ask you two concluding questions. Mr Gordon, you're going to have to conclude. Yes, I'm about to, my lady, but it's a very important point. Of course, the length of some of these answers has been... I will allow you one question and one question only. The question I want to put to you without detail is simply this. There is, we accept, an evolving consensus that would accept that, more probably than not, climate change uh, is a serious problem. But it is evolving, and I suggest to you, and I, I can put all this into my final speech, that the efforts made by the baby boomers, as they've been so graphically designated, have consisted of myriad attempts to solve the problem of climate change. They are the first generation, are they not, to attempt to tackle this problem on a global scale. In my view, the baby boomers should be judged by their record of reducing emissions and they have not. they failed completely. We are emitting more greenhouse gases today than ever before. And it's the baby boomers who have overseen that growth in annual emissions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. Uh, Mr. Hammer, would you uh, please present your uh, second witness? Yes, my lady, Ms. Stapleton will be calling the second witness. The prosecution would like to call Mr. Shiv Malik. Mr. Malik, thank you for joining us. I'd just like to ask you a few questions about the circumstances that have led to Generation Y becoming a jilted generation, bankrupted by the baby boomers, as proposed in your brilliant book on the matter, uh, available online at all good bookstores. Um, As you know, the defence claim that baby boomers inherited a world laid bare by the war and they themselves rebuilt it. Who would you say, in your expert opinion, is in fact responsible for rebuilding Britain after the war? So I did see that claim in the defence's submissions uh, uh, and I thought that was very bizarre that they should claim that the baby boomers had somehow rebuilt the country 
after the Second World War. Of course, the earliest was born in 1945, 1946, which would make them about, uh, well, age zero, obviously, at that point, and for the next 20 years, somehow you'd suggest that the youngest amongst them was part of the, well, as a toddler, part of the rebuilding process of Britain. It's very bizarre. So let me just drive the point home in terms of statistics. Uh, Let's take two. Um, The debt that this country amounted after the Second World War which was about 250% of GDP in 1945. Um, By about 1975, if uh, my statistics hold, I'm sure someone will Google it now, Um, but uh, by about then it was down to about 45%, which is roughly where it remained with some variations uh, until uh, the Great Recession, which we've just undergone. So, i.e., without much change. In fact, actually, the national debt increased because our GDP increased, so the baby boomers as they reached a certain age, uh, uh, i.e. at 1980, about age 35, was the oldest amongst them. They started to take over all these things, uh, politics, etc., etc. Uh, 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 then um, uh, really, uh, at that point, I think, uh, you could say that they maintained the debt at that certain level. But they certainly didn't pay it off. Um, that was for their parents to do. And one other thing would be housing. Uh, in terms of the number of houses built, uh, we had about four, a maximum of 400,000 houses built uh, 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 after, the, after the war for about a period of 30 years. And that certainly wasn't the baby boomers building those houses. In fact, that's the situation that they inherited, which they then rapidly depleted and stopped building altogether almost as of in the last couple of years. And interesting that you talk about housing, um, because the defence also claimed that they're leaving Generation Y, um, you know, a world much better than the one that they inherited. But, you know, from what I understand, Generation Y have have completely given up on the idea of ever owning a house, and the large majority actually still rent and live with their parents well into their 30s. So what would you say about the fact that this appears to be a world much better than the one the baby boomers inherited? Well, it certainly isn't. I mean, I think... What we forget is some historical, whilst doing research for the book, we kind of look at the historical position of what the baby boomers' parents gave to them. How did they manage to encourage them to a position where roughly about 75%, three-quarters of all baby boomers, own their own home, which is a completely different position for the generation, for my generation below, which stands at currently about 40%. Uh, and doesn't look like rising at all. Uh, And when you look at certain things, uh, you realise, well, first of all, uh, they had had rent control. So the parents of the baby boomers gave that generation rent control, which is significantly helpful, obviously, in the the rental control market. And then, uh, of course, when it came to social housing, um, we all remember that council houses were sold off at great discounts to, in fact, the baby boomer generation. Now, that would be okay and all well and good if they replaced that stock, which of course they didn't, which meant that they ended up basically uh, living off the sacrifice of the generation above them, uh, gave themselves a massive discount at social homes and decided to leave nothing behind for the generation afterwards, which is why we have millions now of my generation waiting for a, a social house. Um, one last thing to say on that would be also the MIRAS scheme. I'm sure many of this audience who own their own home, who are of baby boomer age, would remember that, in fact, their interest payments were paid by, effectively, their parents, um, and they were given a giant subsidy. Uh, the interest payments on their house were set against the tax that they paid, uh, 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 and, uh, and that meant, that obviously, their mortgages were far, far lower. That scheme was abolished in 2000, just 
just as my generation were starting to think about buying their own home. How convenient. Thank you. So not really a uh, better world. So let's turn to education and unemployment. So Generation Y, we grew up under Labour's government with a target of 50% of school leavers getting into higher education. Education was was where it was at. So Generation Y were promised by the baby boomers that, you know, get your, get your great education and you'll go on and have a successful career and, you know, you'll, you'll find that job straight away. Now, in your expert opinion, how has this generation been let down by this promise? Well, it's certainly been a promise that our generation really have attempted to fulfil at their end of the bargain. Uh, about 50% of my generation now willing to pay, it would seem, uh, fees of £9,000 a year. Uh, I think the baby boomer generation have conveniently, conveniently forgotten that not only did they not pay fees, they themselves were paid to go to university in the fact that they obviously got grants. Um, and they, you know, and they call us lazy and layabouts. Um, uh, one other travesty, if I may answer this quickly, has obviously been the position of EMA, uh, educational maintenance allowances, which uh, were used to boost uh, attendance by the, kind of the poorest, really, of my generation, uh, and to encourage them into uh, uh, further education. Um, those were cut. Uh, that scheme was cut uh, as part of austerity, while at the same time. Uh, the promises for pensioners were not only maintained, but pensions were increased. And that, I think, is a real travesty. Um, So, uh, all in all, I think our generation has been entirely let down by this promise. On one hand, we've been encouraged into higher education, uh, but uh, with the other hand, if we want, we've been robbed of any ability to, uh, to pursue that end. Thank you. And what do you think this obsession with education and having a degree and a master's has had on the workplace that Generation Y now finds themselves entering into? We are. We've been thrown into a world, obviously, where I think we've been asked, look, you must compete with uh, your peers around the world. This, by the way, wasn't something that the baby boomers ever had to face. Their parents, in fact, protected them using sort of capital control mechanisms, immigration control mechanisms. Uh, So, in a sense, for right or for wrong, certainly the baby boomers were protected from having to compete with their peers around the world so overtly. Uh, This certainly was a protection that was diminished for our generation, for my generation, uh, and... uh, you know, if you look at the economics of it, you find that the baby boom is actually gained by this because by that point, uh, when, when globalisation starts to kick in in the 1990s, at that point they're in the high, they're the boss class basically. At that point, they're sort of further on in their uh, uh, in their careers, and they're able to benefit by this cheaper influx of labour coming in from the bottom uh, at the bottom end. Um, but in terms of uh, sort of, it, it's left our generation, I think, uh, striving to get a foot into the door of employment. Um, uh, let's take two phenomena just very quickly one, internships I'm sure most of my generation will be very familiar with that term working for free uh, for someone else for very long periods of time Uh, only yesterday I think it was the billionaire Philip Green in the Evening Standard complaining about how people weren't working for free for him anymore uh, and how this was a travesty and how lazy again our generation were because they weren't simply willing to be exploited Um, and of course 
And then finally, obviously, for those who are on unemployment benefits, uh, a scheme is now being somewhat you know, introduced in the last couple of years, mandatory work activity, which basically the unemployed and mainly the unemployed young are forced to work for free for a month at least, uh, unpaid. Uh, if not, they will be made basically destitute. I think that's a horrific situation, and one of which, obviously, the baby boomer generation are entirely in charge, entirely, looking at the polls, supportive of. Um, all that leaves the poor of my generation in a far worse situation than could ever be perhaps envisaged by a generation previously, because they must, they must, they can't afford to work for free, they can't afford to get themselves a foot on the ladder of employment, they can't afford to compete with the richest of my generation, and that means social mobility has plummeted. Exactly. And with that, uh, <laughs> so that dire situation with unemployment plus dire situation with housing, what impact would you say that that is having on gender equality in well, the just, workplace? Just before I say this, I must say that, of course, there's been no witness coaching whatsoever. So, in terms of um, the impact on gender, uh, I think. At a broad brushstroke, we can see that uh, where once we would have wanted, the aspiration is for uh, young, educated uh, fem- women uh, to be independent in this world um, on their own means. We've actually inherited, or the situation has become such that in, within my generation, uh, people must be, uh, couples must be more dependent upon each other, males still earn more, and therefore it's more incumbent given the extra housing costs and all the things I mentioned before, the interning, the working for free, um, and the diminution in our wages as a generation and cohort more generally, especially through this recession, um, where women are left in a far worse position. Of course, you know, nothing to say of increased childcare costs which have rocketed and that means, effectively, unfortunately, women are left in the worst position where they, they stay at home rather than being able to go back to work if they're having children. They're more dependent upon their male partners who earn a little bit more, perhaps, and therefore end up being the breadwinners. And all this sets us back. All of this is setting us back very, very rapidly and under the nose of the what, apparently watchful eye of the baby boomers generation who, uh, who are doing nothing about it. Quite happy, apparently, to have it continue. Thank you for your time, Mr. Paul. Thank you. Mr. Malik, I have some questions for you. Um, first of all, I would agree with my learned friend about your excellent book. Um, <laughs> currently, And I begin by noting that your excellent book is dedicated to a number of baby boomers. But thanks. <laughs> no. You say in your book, this book seeks to put, to put bad ideas... <coughs> not baby boomers, pensioners, or our parents, on trial. In your expert opinion, does the prosecution of an entire generation in this manner detract from the valuable aim that I entirely agree with of understanding and challenging the ideas that gave rise to the legitimate grievances of generations X and Y? Well, I think the short version is this, is... Who voted for these ideas? And you, if you come to, pay, to the end chapters, you'll find that, in essence, we realise when you look at who voted for Thatcher, who continued to vote for Tony Blair, and a new economic settlement, the ideas we speak about, you find that the baby boomers were the most enthusiastic about voting. It's a dirty little secret of that generation um, that if you look at, by age, who voted 
for whom you find that the baby boomers were the most enthusiastic. So I think you can hold them, in that sense, certainly in a democratic country, directly responsible. Does this prosecution pitch the young against the old? Does this, this, this. current... Um, it may do. <laughs> Does it... I think it's certainly helping to air legitimate grievances, That's which, fine. if not settled, things will be worse off. Does it seek to stereotype the young and stereotype the old? Their situations, their circumstances, who they may have voted for? Clearly, uh, it's wrong to stereotype people, but using facts and statistics to generalise yeah. is a different <laughs> is a different matter. One must draw generalisations eventually. Now, you say in your book, it was never our intention to put the elderly on trial; only the political and economic decisions made in their names. And you've just clarified, you've helped me here, that what you mean by made in their name, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's who the politicians, who voted for the politicians in power who brought the policies in question. Now, are we talking about the baby boomer generation when they were young? Are we talking about the baby uh, boomer generation as politicians when they grew old enough to to seize power themselves? Um, I think we're talking about it, uh, talking about a generation throughout their lifetimes. I think, um, um, uh, yes. Okay. So if we just start with when they were young and start with the housing scenario, for example, which I agree with you is some cause for concern for generations X and Y. Now, you take the example of the council tenants being given a right to buy. And very interestingly, you look at the language of rights that's used in that context. Mm. And you say it's not a right in a strict sense, it's a benefit. Is that correct? And that this benefit carried with it implicit obligation. Correct? To address housing needs by replacing the stock and investing the receipts from housing sales. And you say that that obligation was ignored to the detriment of generations X and Y. Yes, I'd agree. But this obligation was ignored by the government rather than the disenfranchised people who bought the council houses in the first place. Is that not correct? No. Um, I think that the obligation is one which was glaringly obvious. If you're going to as a generation, sell yourself an asset and not replace it, then one must acknowledge across the board, and I think everyone does, that's a windfall for one generation and not for another one. Um, I think, and it's all governments of all stripes continually voted for by uh, certain generations. Yes, but taking, for example, Tony Blair, I don't believe he benefited from the right to buy his council flats, neither did his parents. <laughs> I'd be right to assume that. I, I, well, personally, no. I don't think he ever bought uh, a council flat. Uh, <laughs> I know he owns a walking grain not. mansion somewhere in central London worth about six million at last count, but no. Yes. And do you have any evidence for whether the people who bought the council flats voted for particular people 
or whether it was the demographic in general. So was it the, was it the very people who benefited who then squandered that benefit and didn't think ahead to their children? I may now stray a bit on my expertise, but there are many, many people who have done this work uh, particularly and found that, yes, actually many people who then bought their houses or were aspiring to did in fact vote for that policy uh, back in the 80s. And did others vote for that policy too? Yes, others I'm sure would have voted for it. Uh, It's hard to then ascribe single... Uh, to say one person only voted for, uh, say, Thatcher uh, because of this one policy alone. Okay. Um, Sorry, just moving on to the now. I'm I'm told I'm running out of time. Um, If voting for a particular government makes you responsible for its policies, what (coughs) of the members of the jilted generation who were let down by Nick Clegg, who made a particular promise to them that he then chose Mm. not to keep? Is it possible, perhaps, that the generations prior to generations X and Y were also led to believe, as Tony Blair did, that education, education, education was to come first, that he was, in fact, investing in the future of their children and the future of this country? Is it possible, perhaps, that they were lied to and misled by the politicians? It's a very interesting line of argument that uh, is advanced... Uh, It is possible they were uh, misled to, but um, one would have to ask what was said and what was fulfilled. And in the case of council housing, as you've talked about before, certainly what was promised and what was given, those outcomes were commensurate with each other. So no one was lied to. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mack. Uh, Mr. Hermer, your your concluding uh, remarks, please. Uh, my lady, I think I'm passing on my concluding remarks to take up extra time for my final closing submissions, and so I think the baton now passes to the defence. Mr Gordon, would you present your case? Uh, the defence case will be opened by um, Ms Albert Harvey. Members of the jury, you have seen the indictment sheet which seeks to blame the generation that everyone likes to hate for all of society's ills. As you digest the doom and gloom that you've just heard, you may still be wondering in what way are the baby boomers exactly to blame? Are the baby boomers guilty because of the perceived benefits they had received when they were young? If so, the the prosecution has not made serious attempts to differentiate between those who did benefit and those who didn't? Are they guilty because of the people they voted for? If so, the prosecution has not made serious attempts to differentiate between people who voted for a particular policy and those who campaigned vigorously against it. What of those who voted for a particular party and had been let down after having been made promises? As I just said, today's youth voted for Nick Clegg in the belief that he would fight the increase in tuition fees. They were badly let down. Can you be sure, beyond reasonable doubt, that yesterday's youth were not similarly let down? Members of the jury, this prosecution is seriously misguided. It pitches the young against the old, stereotyping both in the process. A jilted generation against a pampered generation. Yet many of our parents struggled to make ends meet 
and many of us live a life of relative luxury. <coughs> the defence will present its evidence in response to the t- charges levelled. As you hear this evidence, and as you decide whether to apportion blame, consider this. Today's youth will be tomorrow's pensioners. So it is worth bearing in mind Luke 6.37. Don't judge lest you be judged. The defence would like to call Emma Soames as the first witness. I spent most of my teenage years bickering with my parents and this came to a head when um, they wouldn't allow me to drive to Greece when I was 16 years old as one of five people in the back of a mini. I lost that argument but I won quite a few others. Um, The solution, however, this, you know, this global warming and climate change is far too um, huge and difficult and dangerous a subject to be bickering between generations as to who did what to who. The problems have gone beyond sniping between generations, between deniers who are responsible, it seems to be, only for acres of newsprint and a lot of hot air and high blood pressure. Um, The stakes have never been higher, and climate change is where cooperation is absolutely fundamental. Indulging in the blame game now will produce the worst of all possible outcomes for everybody. And lest we forget, those aged 20 now have enjoyed a lifestyle much, much richer than the first 20 years of the baby boomers. It is time to get together, and those who undermine cooperation undermine the future of us all. The dangers, the dangers of greenhouse gas emissions became very clear, um, unless you work for the Grantham Institute, only became very clear, really, in the 80s. And um, may I remind you that it was the baby boomers who brought it to your attention Um, Developed countries are responsible for the majority of GHGs, but um, we also need to remember that the um, non-developed countries are now responsible for well over half of the annual emissions. Um, It's sort of bickering at this level um, while that's going on is really standing in the way of progress. I turn to the war on terror. I mean, this is ridiculous to charge the baby boomers with. It was an aberration. It was committed by an angry president of the United States and his far-right acolytes lashing out at an invisible enemy supported shamefully by Tony Blair and some cooked-up evidence. Let me remind you, the 15th of February 2003, when six million people in 60 countries demonstrated against the war in Iraq before it had even started, 
Baby boomers joined forces with generations X and Y, and in London, one million martyrs included nuns, toddlers, barristers, the Eton George Orwell Society, archaeologists against war, Walthamstow Catholic Church, the Swaffham Women's Choir, and Knox County supporters saying, make love, not war. It was a huge cross-generational event, and it reflected how the baby boomers were as opposed to the war as generations X and Y. And we know a thing or two about marching. We marched against things constantly. And if you ask me nicely, I could even run you up a Molotov cocktail. Um, But in terms of human cost, the war on terror was a sideshow when compared with the havoc being created by the civil war in Syria or the huge global social cost incurred by diseases such as obesity and diabetes. These have happened on our watch, but so too have the great medical breakthroughs like vaccination against polio and its baby boomer fairy godfather, Bill Gates. Like new hips and knees and eyes and ways to keep your cholesterol down so that we and you will all live longer. Climate change. Um, uh, Historic emissions began with the Industrial Revolution in the 1870s. Hindsight is a very beautiful thing, and had we had it, the post-war generations would be looked back at the Industrial Revolution as the dawn of a dangerous age, but it was regarded then and until very recently as a kick-start to bringing wealth to all corners of society, to deprive geographical areas and impoverished social classes, and I don't know, and I don't think much greater minds than mine have figured out how you equate the god of growth with protecting the planet. Um, The bickering that's going on about climate change is unbelievable. You've got countries um, having to be dragged to negotiating tables. And one wonders just how many climate events are going to be necessary to get them there. Even after the great smog of London in 1952, it took 10 years. I mean, there was a Clean Air Act almost immediately afterwards, but it took 10 years till 1962 when, thank you, the baby boomers finally um, got that matter cleared up once and for all. Um, On the economy, just remember for one second that baby boomers pay tax like everybody else. Um, Their income is taxed, their pensions are now taxed if they've got a lot of it, and their houses are subject to inheritance tax when they die. And unless you're Nick Clegg, nobody's come up with a better way of taxing property. Um, More than a million pensioners live on less than 12,000 a year. However, the um, 
the upper end of the baby boomer wealth, if you like, are largely driving the recovery. 47.6% of household spending in 2012 was spent by the over 50s. And they are working on past retirement age. The last set of ONS figures, um, youth unemployment sadly stuck at about 20%. But um, women working and immigrants, um, incoming people working, those figures were up. So it seems like the recovery is being driven by women and immigrants. Um, baby boomers are indeed stereotyped and I made a very unfortunate remark a couple of years ago when I said I, well, I wanted to be an ambassador for baby boomers or something which I now rather regret since it's got me standing here talking <laughs> but anyway there is a small group who are rosy cheeked fatly pensioned and going on lovely long saga holidays. But there are also many single, unemployed people living on state pensions, suffering from (laughs) emphysema and dwindling out their days in damp flats. They, and all shades of life and activity in between, are baby boomers. It's absolute nonsense that all baby boomers are well-off and lucky, Many are poor and struggling, and it is a fact that inflation for this age group is higher than than for the the rest of us. Um, But the perception of the rosy-cheeked brigade comes with implicit understandings of wealth that are hard to get rid of. Um, I'd just like to make one other point, which is that there is more volunteering done by the uh, baby boomer demographic than by any other other section of the population. And you could equate this with interning. You know, volunteering in your 60s is the interning of your 20s. Um, But I would just finish, like to finish, by saying that um, categorical thinking carries its own dangers. As we are, so shall you be. You are unwittedly undermining your own futures. My lady, could I ask? (laughs) (laughs) Could I ask one or two supplementary questions? Please do. Uh, Ms. Soames, you, you have placed emphasis in your compelling evidence about the bringing to attention of climate change by the baby boom generation. Just to flesh out some detail, I think you would have said all this, is it right that there are a huge number of non-governmental environmental organisations set up by the baby boom generation in the 70s, the 80s and beyond? And do they include Greenpeace, English Heritage, Woodland Trust, Campaign for Better Transport, UK Environmental Law Association, etc. They do indeed. Yes. (laughs) I'm very grateful. And just one final um, supplementary question, because I know you were going to say this. (laughs) 
Is it not also right that it was the baby boom generation that globalised the concerns over climate change by establishing, for example, and it's only one example, the International Panel on Climate Change, which has produced successive reports focusing and helping to ameliorate those concerns. That is absolutely correct. And as you say, they um, set up many, many others as well, um, all of which have um, titles that are... um, Oh, and the, the, yes, the American um, scientific... uh, Yes. (laughs) Putting your evidence in a nutshell, is it your case that this prosecution without wishing to be rude to the prosecutors, is a hate prosecution, setting one generation against another. That is exactly what I would like to say, and I hope I got my point across. I'm extremely grateful. Thank you. Mr Homer, would you wish to to cross-examine this witness? Yes, please. Um, um, um. (laughs) Let let me start, if I may, Ambassador, uh, by um, saying I'm going to... In light of your comments about Molotov cocktails, I'm going to tread a little carefully. (laughs) But I think you'd accept, would you not, that your generation benefited enormously from the sacrifices of the generation that came before you? Yes, and so did Generation X and Generation Y. Well, we'll come on to that in a moment if we may. We live in a peaceful society. We've had the longest period of peace. Oh, yes. Make no mistake. It is no part of our case to say that Generation X and Y have not benefited from the great sacrifices of the wartime generation, as did your own baby boomer generation, did it not? Enormous sacrifices were made to create free education, a welfare state, a health service. Enormous sacrifice was made by the generation that preceded yours in order to allow you and those in your generation to maximise their potential? No, the sacrifices had already been made in the Second World War. What was interesting about the setting up of the welfare state and the National Health Service was that it was a sort of new playing field. Yes. And they didn't... Something had to go. Institutions had to be created. And these were very enlightened yes. and uh, far-reaching... Oh, absolutely, and they, it was but understood. now what's getting them into trouble is the weight of numbers, etc. Absolutely. It's drain <laughs> from the baby boomers. No. Drain from the baby boomers. It's causing all sorts of problems. But I want to focus just back on the question, if I may. Do you or don't you accept that it was great sacrifice by the wartime generation that allowed the baby boomers to flourish? Um, up to a point, Lord Copper. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, um, I'm slightly in that, it's same In the same way that it was by the efforts, a lot of baby boomers pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And you know why they did that? Because they wanted to give their children a better start in life than they had. Yes, and they were helped along the way by by a free. Yes, and they were helped along the way by a free university education, 
by a flourishing welfare state, by a health service. That all helps, doesn't it? Correct. Now, Correct. what are the baby boomers? Identify for us similar sacrifices that the baby boomers have done <laughs> for their generation. Help us. No. <laughs> no, si- silence in court. <laughs> you can't argue with the judge. <laughs> Ambassador, anything you can identify by way of similar sacrifice that the baby boomers have done for the next generation? Um, yeah, we've invited them back home to stay with us. <laughs> <laughs> Pause while I wipe a tear from my chin. But, Ambassador, when you talk about pensioners and the great contribution of pensioners, that's not the baby boomers, is it? Baby boomers are now aged 50 to 68. It's not the pensioners. Don't don't try and bring them in on your cause. They're not not baby boomers, are they? Um, Yeah, well... um, Well, ish. Should we talk about the bickering? Yeah, well, I don't. But you identify as preventing us from getting to the heart of climate change. So that's bickering, presumably, carried out between governments. Absolutely. Heads of governments. Uh, yes. And whole countries refusing to, to sign up to the Kyoto because Protocol. Of, because, of, because of heads of government. Uh, Indeed, but also no, because most no, but also where do most of the country, such as in the United States, it's practically a religious belief yeah. that, that climate change doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. We're, we're, sorry, my question might have got lost. But, um, <laughs> just, 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 just help me if you can. Uh, most of those heads of government, they'd be from what generation? Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> see where you're going with this, but they are individuals, aren't they? You can't, as I like, um, as I tried to explain to you, the war on terror was an aberration committed by a small group of people. Well, do, do, do you... Um, this, this is very, tragically, people taking individuals making the wrong call. So the whole of history can be explained not by systems, not by movements, not by structures, just by the odd individual. (laughs) At certain moments, I could point to somebody who um, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Let's look at it in the context of climate change. Let's take that analysis. Uh, You accept, I assume that the greatest increase in carbon emissions has been caused historically by the baby boom generation. Yes, because that is because there are more of them. It's and a population yeah. issue. Yeah. And Mr. Helmer, you, you need to... My last conclude. question, my lady, you think that can just be excused, do you? Because in the same time period, uh, somebody gave birth to Sir Nicholas Stern and Jonathan Porritt. That excuses, mm. does it? that lets the baby boom generation off the hook? No, I think we've got to stand up to the plate and take responsibility, but I think you're trying to shovel all the blame onto one generation is just ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> I've noticed the question. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Thank you.
Mr. Gordon, would you call um, your yes, second we're, witness? We're calling um, Ms. Oriana Bandiera. I think I'll start with the fact that not even this very clever prosecution team can attack, presumably, that is, I'm not a baby boomer. That should be pretty evident unless I aged prematurely tonight, and I had reasons to do so. Uh, so you might be wondering, what am I doing here? Well, that's exactly what I'm wondering. And when they asked me to be a uh, witness for defense, the first question that I asked myself is, would I rather be a baby boomer? And if so, is it their fault that I'm not? Well, the first image that came to mind when I read the list of charges was that of a very elegant and very wealthy lady who spends half of her time flying somewhere nice, like the south of Spain, rigorously flying and creating carbon emission in the process, and the other half in a beautiful four- or five-story mansion in central Islington, where I would like to live, not only this central, this mansion in central Islington is worth two million pounds, two and a half million perhaps, and she paid 12,000 pounds for it in February 1978. <laughs> and she's well proud of it. Spain is fantastic. Five bedroom house in central Islington, that's even more fantastic. I really wanted to be that lady. Now the issue that I faced in this visualization of my dream of being a baby boomer is that in February 1978, I was six years old. And while already I was in possession of a very deep understanding of the laws of demand and supply, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to buy houses. And that's when it dawned on me that I was making the wrong comparison. Allow me an economic term, I was using the wrong counterfactual. I cannot compare myself now to somebody who's 65 now. I have to compare myself at 65 to somebody who's 65 now. And of course I can't do that. Economists are notoriously bad at forecasting the future. But what I can do, I can compare the past. And I have two sources of information on this. One is my parents, who are bona fide baby boomers. And uh, the second is national statistics. So let me take those in turns. Uh, my mom was born in 1947, like Nicola Stern I just learned. And she never ceased to remind us that when she was a little girl, she was always starving. Inevitably, she did this while she was trying to force feed us calf liver, <laughs> which, as of today, I think it's worse than starvation, but that might itself be a matter of taste. Now, having survived starvation, my mother went to university. And uh, she went to, to study biology, and she was one of five girls in her class of 500, 1,000, she can't remember but one of very few girls. 25 years later, I went to study economics, which you will admit is not the most feminine of subjects, and half of my cohort were girls. Having graduated, my mother immediately had a child. She was offered a research position at the university. She had to decline it because that was not compatible with the expectation of women at that time, which was to raise children. So she took a teaching job instead, and she started soaking up on the calf liver, which then tormented us for the rest of our lives. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, when I was 25 years old and I graduated, I got offered a scholarship to study in the United States, so I left my native Italy, moved to the US, and studied for a PhD in economics. <coughs> now, our lives started diverging precisely at that point. Her professional career peaked in, nine, in what she was in her 30s. 
My one just started when I was in my 30s. She always earned between a fourth and a fifth of what my father was earning. I earned the same as my husband. Most of her friends were housewives. Most of my friends are professional like me. Now, of course, you could argue this is just an anecdote and it doesn't represent the average life of the baby boomer and the average life of generation X or Y person. That might not, but I think it very well represents the average difference between these two types of generation. And indeed, if you go and look at national statistics, and mind you, I'm an economist, so I can stay here for about half an hour quoting statistics, but I won't. I'll just give you a few. Out of 1,000 babies born in the UK in 1947, 54 died. That number was 20 in 1971, so I was born in a good year. It is less than five now. Now, the human physiology hasn't changed. But of course, the quality of the health services have, and that's what has improved. Life expectancy has improved, education enrollment has improved, even the uh, famous tertiary education has been bashed so hardly today. And in terms of uh, women's rights and women's labor force participation, well, when my mom was 35, almost half of the women were out of the labor force. Nowadays, it's only 20%. Okay. The bottom line, I could go on. I promise I can go on, but I won't. The bottom line is that the average Britain in my generation is 65% richer than her or his parents were at the same age. Now, when I say 65% richer, I'm not using an economist trick. I'm using, actually, the worst possible estimate that I can use. It's an estimate which is inflation-adjusted. That is, it takes into account the fact that prices have changed at the same time as income has risen. And of course, if I talk about prices, inevitably, I'm going to go back to the mansion in central Islington where I want to live and where I cannot afford to live these days. So why has house prices gone up? Now, this is really economics 101. If you've never taken economics, you will learn the basic of economics, which accounts for more or less 90% of all economics tonight. <coughs> it's demand and it's supply. Houses are built on land. The amount of land available in the United Kingdom is fixed. You can build more houses by destroying parks. You can build more houses by destroying existing houses and building high-rise buildings instead. That's quite limited what you can do by the amount of land that's available. At the same time, the demand for housing has been going up. Why? There are more people. And what did I tell you before about these people? They're also richer. And they're not all baby boomers. The people who are now looking for houses are the people who are complaining about not finding them, the generation X and Y. Okay, so the house prices have gone up, undoubtedly, to clear the market. That's what prices do. That's the job. But why focus only on house prices? Why don't we think of food prices, communication, transportation, electronics? You name it. Pretty much the price of anything else has been plummeting. Now, if we really want to blame the baby boomers because house prices have increased... We should also thank them profusely because the price of everything else has been falling. Uh, of course, to an economist, and I hope that by now to all of you, neither makes any sense because it's not a person or even a generation that makes the price. Now, I think that for all I've thought about and all the statistics that I haven't told you, on a year-by-year -year comparison, I have no doubt that my generation had a much easier ride. <coughs> And for this, we can only thank those who came before us, because all this progress that we've been experiencing in the last 40, 50 years has been man-made and woman-made, I would say. So the last thing that I really hope is that if my daughter gets us to do exactly the same exercise in 30 years from now, she can come to the same conclusion about my generation. And I think I'm giving her a very good head start. 
I've never for once given her any car flavour. <laughs> Can I ask for two very quick supplementary questions, my lady? Um, the first one may seem a very small point in the big scale of things, uh, but the prosecution began their opening of this case by referring to the ancient Sheikh Zayed building on the basis that it represented the work of generations. How, how old is the Sheikh Zayed theatre? I believe five years. Thank you. <laughs> the um, second uh, point uh, is simply on rent control. I wonder, we, we were told a little bit about uh, how rent control might be the most desirable thing. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? That's a very good question because that's the second lesson in economics that you will learn after having learned about demand and supply. So the proponent of rent control live in this idealized world where they think that the moment they put a cap on the rent, everything will remain exactly the same except that the people who rent houses will pay less. Of course, that's not what happens because prices provide an incentive for landlords to take care of their houses and for landlords to maintain houses so they can be rented. And if you go more upstream, they provide an incentive for developers to build houses so that they can eventually be rented. Now, if the economic returns to all of those activities, the maintenance of the house, the renting of the house, the building of the house, go down by force, the number of houses which will be available on the market will diminish. And so the rent control policy will backfire. The only people who benefit from rent control are the people who are already renting, who are sitting basically on an asset which is appreciated, which is the, the value of the rental flat on the rent control. So it is a fake solution, effectively. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Mr. Herman, do you wish to cross-examine this witness? Oh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, can we start with the house in Islington? Yes. If your mother had been in London, let's say in the mid-1950s, and she'd wanted to buy a lovely five-storey house in central Islington, it wouldn't have cost her very much money, would it? It wouldn't have, but then again, central Islington wouldn't have been a very good place to live in 1950. <laughs> That's a very good point, Professor. <laughs> Let's move along the tube map, shall we? I can say that I, I'm proud to say that I can afford a five-bedroom house in Leytonstone, but I'm not quite too keen to move. Houses in central London in the 1950s would not have been beyond the reach of ordinary working people, would they? Depends how you define central London. There would still be areas of central London that would have been of So this of is course. all expanded, like the of economy course. expands, the population expands, central London expands. Of course. What, what do you think today a, a, a house in central Islington costs? <coughs> nice four-storey house, five bedrooms, central Islington. What's, what's that going to? Two million. Two million. What have you got to earn nowadays to be able to buy a house for two million pounds if you don't have much by the way of savings? I think about uh, 200,000. What, to get a mortgage 10 times? To get a mortgage 10 times your earnings? Perhaps we could all take a note of the the building society. (laughs) (laughs) No, you've got got very little by way of savings because it's very hard to to save money and you want to buy a house for £2 million. What have you got to be earning? You've got to be earning well over a million pounds a year, haven't you? 
Not really. I think you can borrow more than half of your salary. You can borrow more. You've got to be earning... Unless you want to pay in cash. Well, I know the answer to that. If you want to pay cash, then you need to be earning two million. (laughs) (laughs) And then one year you'll have enough. Professor, the point I'm seeking to labour is that for very, very many working people now, buying a house is an un- in, in London is an unrealisable dream. No matter what profession they're in or what job they have, it, they just cost too much. I fail to see why the only measure of welfare which we use in this discussion is the ability to purchase bricks and mortar. Yes, Professor, that's an interesting answer, but it's not the one to the question. <laughs> the, 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 question, the question was, it is, it is just, it's, just it's, it's virtually impossible if you're earning an ordinary wage in this city to, to purchase a property in central London. I would agree with that. And that's a fundamental change since the mid-1950s and 1960s and indeed much of the 1970s. Yes. Correct. Do you agree? I agree up to a point. The point that in uh, the 1950s and 1960s, it wasn't so desirable to buy a house in central Islington. So you're using today's aspiration to judge how much people enjoy those properties. The Islington of the 1950s was the Leytonstone of today. Well, and almost everybody can afford to buy a house in Across London. <laughs> <laughs> You surely must agree that there has been a vast increase in the price of housing. The same way I agree that there's been a vast plummeting in the price of computers. (laughs) (laughs) And that has been... (laughs) The increase in prices has been to the benefit, in the main, to the baby boomers who bought at the lower prices and now have the higher prices. Now, again, I'm sure as an economist, there are lots of little nuances, lots of different caveats, but in general, Professor, that's correct, isn't it? As a statement of fact, it yes. is. But it's and not so, what they're doing, the prices were not. Well, they are the beneficiaries of that price increase, aren't they? They are. Now, in order for those housing stock <coughs> pass to the next generation, Professor Martin Wheel a well-known and respected economist, has estimated it's going to require a transfer of wealth of about £1 trillion from Generation X and Y to the baby boomers. Does that sound about right to you? No, it doesn't. He's got it wrong. I don't know what the assumptions he used to make this. What would, what would, you, assume, what would you say it would be? It's a question that almost makes no sense. Well, what does he mean? The baby boomers, they're not immortal as far as they know. Yeah. These houses will be inherited by sold. Well, or sold. So, or sold. sold. We, we sold. live in a market, they're going to be sold. Some people and the realisable, the realisable value of that to the baby boomers who bought their house at a low price and are going to sell it at a high price is going to mean it's going to cost the next generation about a trillion pounds to buy the properties. Mr Herman. Your final question, my, 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 my final question, Professor, is you talked about uh, the uh, uh, narrowing gap for gender inequalities. But it, it's right, is it not, 
that uh, women's unemployment is now at a 26-year high, while male unemployment is decreasing. And it's also right that in the last two and a half years, almost three times as many women as men have become long-term unemployed. That shows that gender inequality is acute and damaging today. I'd be the first one to admit that we haven't achieved gender parity, and this is something worth fighting for. But the third lesson in economics is that you can make almost any statement by changing the base year. So if you compare it in a very short period of time to three years ago, I haven't checked the percentage changes with respect to three years ago. Probably you're right. But that's not a three-year, that's not something that you judge in such a short period of time. You have to have a secular view. You have to compare my generation to my mother's generation. On that, I have no doubt that we're in a much better place. Thank you. Mr Gordon, do you want to uh, make some concluding remarks at this point? Or? Well, I think I'm, I'm going to reply when Mr Hermer uh, gives his address. So if I could save the time that I might have spent replying now. So you and Mr Hermer are both going to uh, do longer concluding remarks. If that's possible, right. I, I would prefer. I, I, prefer will de- I will defer to my clerk. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. I'm very right. grateful. You can proceed on that basis. Thank you. Okay. I'm grateful to your learned clerk, my lady, as well. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. Uh, Mr. Hermes, you would like to thank present you, your case. You have eight minutes. My lady, thank you. Members of the jury, before you can consider convicting the defendant of any of these charges you must be sure of four facts. Firstly, you must be sure that the defendant actually owed a duty to the next generation, or whether to the contrary, they were wholly at liberty to live their lives without concern for the consequences for those who follow. Members of the jury, if you cherish even the most basic notions of a just society, you will find that an easy question to answer. Secondly, you must be sure that the baby boomers actually had an inheritance that was capable of being squandered. Again, members of the jury, you could be sure of that because this truly was a generation that never had it so good. They inherited a planet that was ecologically sound that carefully managed would be capable of providing solid and stable growth. They benefited from a post-war expansion of the welfare state that lavished upon them unparalleled access to healthcare, to education, to housing. They were able to enter a labour market in which they could confidently expect to enjoy employment that was not only well remunerated, but gave them a sense of self-worth. And they generated extraordinary amounts of wealth. Now the third question, members of the jury, is whether the following generations have been deprived of similar good fortune. And again, the evidence is clear. Now in this respect, members of the jury, like with many of the questions and the issues you're going to have to grapple with, it is no use to you to look at odd individual examples. Of course, some people have done well. 
Of course some baby boomers have suffered. Of course some baby boomers have done extraordinary, admirable work. But that is not the issue that you have to grapple with. Here, sitting in a courtroom filled with learning, we look for the answers not by individuals, but we look through structures. And so we look at generations X and Y, our generations who, for the first time in modern history, will grow up to be probably less well-off and less content than their parents, less likely to enjoy long-term employment, less likely to find satisfactory employment, less likely to own a home, less likely to have any savings, less likely to be able to look forward to a comfortable retirement. It's no wonder that the term quarter-life crisis was coined long after the baby boomers had passed that threshold. It is these generations who not only have to face this reality today, but their burden will only increase as time goes on. It is they, not the baby boomers, who will have to live with the consequences of climate change. It is they, not the baby boomers, who will have to fill a pension gap, and it is they who will have to live with the long-term consequences of the financial crisis. Now, the fourth and final question that you need to satisfy yourselves of, members of the jury, is whether the defendants are at fault and must be held to account by a guilty verdict. And to answer that question, we need to look at the indictment. Now, three of the charges relate to climate change. And the defendant pleads in response (coughs) that it is only in recent times that it is appreciated that climate change is a serious threat And since that time, they say, baby boomers have been at the forefront of the campaign to ameliorate it. But members of the jury, the risks of climate change and the potential causal role played by humankind has been known for decades. The science, as you've heard, emerged in the middle of the last century, building upon work that preceded that. Yet the defence would have it that it was reasonable for them to wait until the evidence was certain before they were under a duty to take any action. Now, you may think that when the risk is to the very future of our planet, it may have been prudent, nay, necessary, to start taking remedial action before you reached scientific certainty. Members of the jury, if a fire alarm goes off in a house, you don't wait until you see the flames before taking your children out of it. In any event, can it really be said that the baby boomers have taken sufficient action? Has the grave risk to our existence been adequately met by flying thousands of politicians around the globe to meet in Rio and Doha to sign yet more pieces of paper whilst the planet burns? Does this, members of the jury, feel like a planet getting to grips with climate change? Is it an answer to argue, almost like a drug pusher, that the problem isn't caused by them, it's caused by the next generation's love of Ryanair and iPads? Or are the boomers who have created this economy the ones who are responsible? They must answer 
not simply to the following generations of the developed world, but to those of the undeveloped world who will bear the brunt of climate change, whose populations will suffer from drought, from storms, from knock of crops, who are least able to ameliorate the worst ravages of climate change. They will have to answer to countries like the Maldives, whose entire landmass will disappear. Now, of course, if you think that is all excusable, then you must acquit. But if you think that more could have been done and should have been done, then you must convict. Members of the jury, charges four and five relate to standards of living. What, you may ask, could be more emblematic of the baby boomers than the financial crisis? Bankers wrapping up subprime mortgages taken by people who could only ever default, giving them AAA status so they could be traded, absolutely sure of short-term profit, equally sure of devastating consequences along the line. What a perfect motif for the baby boomers. And what about the pension gap? What about the costs of funding the ageing baby boomers? It said, quite rightly, they cannot be blamed for getting old and getting ill. But what you may think they can be condemned for is not putting money aside to pay for it. What they should have known since birth, that they would get old and they would get ill, required saving. Like the Norwegians, who put aside percentages of their oil revenue so they now have the largest sovereign pension fund in the world, so could the baby boomers have put money aside So it is not their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren who will carry the costs of their feckleness. Now, of course... Mr Hermer, your eight minutes are almost uh, up. Then I will be quick. If you think that is wrong, acquit. If you think they are responsible, convict. Gender discrimination. My lady, I have two two more points and then I will finish. Gender discrimination. Of course there have been advances. But this was a generation that had the opportunity to close the gap. Let me give you an example from last week close to home. A hundred new Queen's councils appointed. Eighteen women. My lady, it's a rarity to be presided over. (laughs) (laughs) Only 15% of your High Court colleagues are women. 10% of the Court of Appeal. We've had one female Supreme Court Justice in English legal history. Members of the jury, if you think the baby boomers could have done more, you should convict. The war on terror, I will give you four words to convict. George Bush, Tony Blair. (laughs) Members of the jury, the facts are plain. The consequences are profound. It is time this generation is held to account. Members of the jury, you should do your duty and convict. Thank you, Mr. Helmer. Uh, Mr. Gordon. Thank you, my lady. This is the one and only opportunity that we have to put our case to the jury. 
The first thing I want to say about this prosecution is that like the universe, the physical universe that we inhabit, it has two gaping black holes at its center. <laughs> the first is, it is grossly discriminatory. The second is, it has no target. It has no target because no evidence has been adduced to hit any specific target. And though we do not need to go that far, because there is no proper target. We have heard a battery, I was almost going to say subjected to a battery, of statistics, of figures. Can an issue with such ramifications be decided on the assertions of somebody from the Grantham Institute who has a communication case to fulfill? <laughs> Can a case as wide, widely important as this be decided upon a valuation of life that regards the highest value as being able to buy bricks and mortar? Obviously not. We ask you not to approach this case in the legalistic, narrow fashion that the prosecution advocate. They set out four questions, four questions slanted in their favour, and then they seek to provide the only answers that there can be. Let us look at some amazing things that the baby boom generation has done for humanity and looking back at that broad holistic picture, ask yourselves this one question, not four questions, but one. When you've heard this list, at the end of it, are you able to say at all, let beyond reasonable doubt, that the baby boom generation should be scapegoated in the way it is? If this was done to a race, all the students whose values LSE promotes would leave this building instantly. If it was done to an individual, you'd all leave instantly. But, says Mr. Herman, it has nothing to do with people, really. Is not a generation an aggregation of people? He says not. He says it's about structure. Well, let's look at the structures that this generation has generated. Let's look at what they've done. First of all, you're still here, right? <laughs> Generation X and Y didn't live through the Cold War with its military strategy of mutually assured destruction. I sat in a music class in 1962, terrified that by the end of that class I would be dead because it was the day that Kennedy confronted Khrushchev. Has any of this generation had any of that difficulty? Oh, of course, they can't buy a house. Well, I'm so sorry. They can in Lakeston, but they can't in this When I was seven, when I was seven, I saw a man... I didn't see a man hanged. I heard about it. As a child, several people were killed, executed in this country for killing policemen. That's gone. Maybe not in China, but we're not in China. No more polio. No more smallpox. No more measles. No more mumps. No more rubella. No more whooping cough. Most members of Generation X and Y have never heard of infantile paralysis, never shivered at photos of vast hospital wards filled with crippled children. That's something to thank God and the baby boomers for. The rise of Africa. After two centuries as the dark continent, Africa is about to make a breakthrough. Some African states now have the highest rates of growth uh, in the world. And that is the baby boom generation. Bob Dylan, the Beatles, the Beach Boys. <laughs> no. 
let's not go that far. <laughs> Mobile phones. Wireless communications are not just for Generation Y, or I should say the baby boomers, to use as a texting toy. Mobile phones are making a huge difference in accelerating economic development in the third world. Shattering the glass ceiling. True it is, as Mr. Hermer eloquently reminded you, that we only have 15% of women on the High Court bench and only one Lady Justice in the Supreme Court. But anybody who came into a set of chambers in the, when we were young, will have realized the hidebound attitudes of the previous generation. It's only with this generation that women are accelerating like rockets through the system. Communism is kaput. Well, I think that's a good thing. It may be Mr. Malik doesn't. <laughs> Living with disability. Living with disability. I can remember the attitudes to the disabled, and I'm sure many of you can. Look at what we've got now. Now, members of the jury, this is a very broad-brush approach. But which approach do you prefer? The approach that mechanistically goes through a list of questions and reaches the answers Mr. Hermer wants based on statistics that nobody knows whether they're true or not because they've been flashed at you like a laser gun, or the slower, more considered, more reflective approach. <laughs> but I have been advocating. <laughs> Members of the jury, we ask you to find a resounding not guilty verdict. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. Now, members of the jury, you have a vital and onerous task before you. It's now that you have heard the cases for the prosecution and the uh, defence, you must come up with a verdict of innocence or, or uh, guilty. Now, I want you to be, uh, if at all possible, for all of you to come up with one verdict. So, in other words, all 12 of you to, to agree. However, if, if that does not prove possible, I'm prepared to accept a verdict from nine of you. In other words, a majority verdict. As I say, you've got a very uh, onerous task. And what you have to think about is that whether the prosecution has, in fact, made its case beyond reasonable doubt. Beyond reasonable doubt. You also can only consider the evidence that has been presented before you uh, this evening. Okay. This, of course, is a very serious case, and we need you to take it very, very seriously. Okay. Clock. Okay. Uh, Milady, not so seriously that they keep us waiting for a very long time. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I have a very junior clerk who is now moving in the direction of the jury. The jury... <laughs> there is no such thing in this great and free country of ours. Members of the jury, you've not yet been asked to leave. <laughs> the hovering of the junior clock is to be ignored. <laughs> we have not yet gotten this free country of ours jury vetting, much less jury nobbling, much less jury fixing, so it was a surprise to me that we have six baby boomers and six representatives of generations. <laughs> they have been produced by an arbitrary but extraordinarily convenient batch. <laughs> And what is now going to happen is they are going to be led away by my very junior menial and after tonight still more menial truck <laughs> after his attempt to grab attention uh, to the jury room. And we have got many mod cons and one of them is one that is going to enable you all to see the jury. Members of the jury, you will be in the equivalent of the big justice house. <laughs> Uh, we will not be able to hear them uh, on the assumption that they speak. Goodness knows what goes on in a jury room. Uh, we'll be able to see them. And when I have dismissed through my menial truck the jury, I will, and you will be required to be extremely quiet and respectful at that moment, the moment when I return, to lead the judge out. That will not be the end of the proceedings. The government has decreed a knowledge exchange moment, is what the Lord Chancellor has called it. He's insisting that, now that there is no legal aid, that every case should have a, an interregnum where members of the public engage with the expert evidence. Mr. Grayling is quite clear, I regret to say, learned counsel, that you have very little role to play. He's mistrustful of your advocacy, but he wants to hear from what he called, I regret to say, ordinary persons. <laughs> so, when I have extorted the judge out, I will return... And there was a person who was held in contempt, and I see has since been removed. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, attempted to intervene. Uh, there will be opportunities for more formal intervention. And uh, we expect the jury, he said, beatingly looking at the jury, to take not a very great deal of time. Important, milady, though the issue is, undoubtedly. So, menial clock, can you lead the jury out? As the jury leave, you can prepare yourself to show respect to the judge. Some members of the jury, some of the baby boomer generation taking quite a long <laughs> Baby boomer generation has rather more possessions than generation... <laughs> All rise. Yeah, <laughs> 
Speedily. There will be a vote taken uh, among the group here uh, before the jury come back. So we'll be able to compare the uh, verdict of the community here and the verdict of the jury. Uh, there might be some questions, there might be some observations. We have microphones, and this is an opportunity, in a sort of slightly serious way, to feed in your perspective on, I think we're entitled to say, guilt or innocence. I want you to try and keep before you the discipline of the trial. Uh, would anybody like to come in first? There's a gentleman right over there uh, to whom the uh, steward is going with that microphone. Do we have anybody over here? Does anybody else want to catch my eye? We have a person up here, a lady. We have two. Do we have any? And we have this gentleman here. So we'll take these three. You can direct a question or you can make an observation. Thank you. My name is David. My, my Sorry, question what was the name, Dave? David. 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 There's always David. My question would be, if found guilty, what would be the fitting punishment for that generation? Yeah. Thank you very much. So, to what the, we might want to refer to one of the lawyers, and we might want to just mention what we what the prosecution want. Maybe Bob could do that. Uh, Madam, um, I just like to say. Uh, what's, your, that what's your name? If you don't Sarah. mind, me, Sarah. Um, I just like to say that um, you, they didn't speak about education as much, and a row of us sitting here are currently Year Eleven students who feel that halfway through our GCSE education. Um, the government feel that they can make changes which just doesn't affect just us but millions of teenagers around the world and also that we're only 15, 16 years old and we've lived through 9-11, the 7-7 bombing, the Afghanistan war, the Iran and Iraq wars, the Israeli and Palestine conflicts and the Arab Spring and if our generation are are used to the violence then what about the generations that come after us? And so are you thinking... Are you thinking guilty or innocence? Where does that lead in terms of your judgment on the night? I feel like they're guilty. <laughs> uh, there's a gentleman, not, I think, was it you, sir? Yeah, down here, Tom Stewart, and a little along the line. Uh, good evening, Angus Hanton, Intergenerational Foundation. Um, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to ask about uh, the... the, the uh, remedy that you're seeking is re- relating to pensions, and it seems to me that we've got a pensions crisis, but there's a pensions crisis for the older generation, but even more so 
for the younger generation, but of course it's not here yet. So do you, could you perhaps express your views on the difference but, uh, issues around uh, the pension promises that have been made where no money has been set aside? So the baby boomers, it seems to me anyway, have promised themselves pensions to be paid by the next generation. And could you say something perhaps also about the very generous taxation of pension savings compared to earned income, where younger people, Generation X and Y, get taxed very heavily on the earned income, whereas unearned income, which tends to accrue to the baby boomer generation, is taxed very lightly, if at all. So this is a comment on the penalty that the prosecution want to exact. Is that right? I'm trying to get to... And that fits with David's request to know what the punishment is. Bob, do you want to start yes. on, on that? And then we can whiz around it on education for certain as well. So if we want to uh, avoid the worst impacts of climate change in the future, if we want future generations not to have to face those worst consequences, we need to invest now very heavily in alternatives to the um, sources of the problem. And that means transforming our energy system away from uh, the very polluting fossil fuels and to create uh, a new low-carbon economy. Now, that will need to be paid for, and given that the baby boomer generation has uh, grown rich on dirty growth, dirty economic growth, I think uh, a reasonable contribution by a confiscation of half the wealth currently held by the entire world's uh, baby boomer generation and have that all entirely invested in uh, the development of low carbon technologies and other, uh, other ways of making the transformation away from dirty growth. I suspect we'll be left with lots of other money left over because it's only really going to cost us about 1% of GDP a year to make that transition so you could probably invest it in uh, eradicating global poverty while you're at it. Thanks. Uh, I can take a question on uh, education. Yes, well, I just wanted to draw something out from that, which is to say, I think, you know, the, the, the uh, defence here talked about kind of this being discriminatory against ages, which is exactly, I think, how young people generally have been treated. They've been discriminated against in many senses, either when it's come to how the austerity axe has fallen, or simply in that kind of attitude that you kind of pointed out, that, oh, well, they're young, so we can just enact this change now. So, for example, with pensioners, obviously, they're given years and years of sort of lead-up, well, because they're adults, and, you know, that's what we do, and, and, of course, people have to manage their lives. But if you're a young adult, well, you can accept the change right now. Why not? You don't, you're, you're in that sense, very easily discriminated against. Well, one thing being, say, housing benefits. Uh, the, the age was changed from uh, 25 and suddenly raised to 35. So suddenly 35-year-olds and, and below found themselves getting far less all of a sudden. Um, student fees, obviously, being a change enacted within a few years. So people couldn't plan, obviously, to save £9,000 to do all of that, nor could their parents in any way sort of help them. Suddenly it was just foisted upon them. Why? Because they're young adults. That's fine. If you're older adults, you get respect. I think we have a a real problem in attitude. I mean, there's a whole list of them which I've got down here. I'm not going to go through them all. But we do have a problem with how we treat young adults. Suddenly they're second-class citizens in 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 their own country. Thanks a lot. Any comments on what we've heard? 
Yes, I'm quite puzzled how the definition of a baby boomer keeps changing depending on what helps the prosecution team the most. Earlier on, we heard that the baby boomers are no pensioners, so we shouldn't be talking about the frail pensioners. But then when we talk about preferential tax rates for pensions, that's something that benefits the baby boomers. I think it'd be worth, not just for an economist, but for anybody in the room, to agree on a definition and stick to it. If the baby boomers are pensioners, then they're benefiting from the tax, and they have all the ills of the pensioners. If they are not, then they're not benefiting from this preferential tax treatment, but you can't have it both ways. And the other point that I wanted to add was about education, the fluctuations in education policies. And again, as I said, you can make everything look very rosy or very bleak by choosing the appropriate year. So you can say, well, 2008 was a terrible year for economic growth. That's true compared to 2007. But 2008 compared to 1958, I think there was a lot of economic growth in between. So not focusing on this small cyclical changes, but look more at the secular growth, because after all, we're judging a generation, an entire generation, so we should look at changes over the course of a generation, not a blip in a policy here and a blip in a policy there. Right, I'm going to bring Shint back quickly, but Emma, did you want to come in here? No, I'm fine. You're fine for now. Yeah. <laughs> An incredibly short rejoinder. It's something, obviously, that the defence has also done, and it may have helped to have agreed on a, on a definition, but obviously polio, the first vaccine sometimes in the 1950s, how old was the oldest baby boomer in the 1950s? Five? Yes, ish. Right. So they couldn't obviously take claim the credit for the polio vaccine or the Clean Air Act in 1962. 17 was the oldest baby boomer then? I... Great. Should I think we... Excellent. Uh, we've got a gentleman here uh, who's going to come in. We've got this lady here, three rolls from the end, and we've got a gentleman up there. So we're going to move along this way. Sir, your name, observation, your question, and if directed at a certain person, say so. Thank you. Yeah, good evening, everyone. My name is uh, William Wong. Just to build on uh, the previous gentleman's comments, <coughs> Angus, from the Inter- Intergenerational Foundation, I know we're here for a trial. We are in a slightly artificial win-lose situation. Looking at the number of charges on my sheet here, I'm very concerned about two things. Climate change, which is borderless, and that will affect all generations now and in days to come, and also about the war on terror, which is really about global security. Never mind cyber security. I'd love to hear from you now. We're not in the, in the kind of trial situation. What practical steps we can do together across generations to mitigate and adapt against immediate threats on all these counts? Practical steps rather than win-lose situations. Thank you. Great, William. Thank you very much. I think, Stuart, we're going to go right over here with your microphone, actually. And then we've got the other microphone. The gentleman, put his hand up again. Uh, Madam, uh, the microphone's coming over to you. Name and question or comment. Thank you, William. Uh, Dr. Ramick, please. Um, I would like to agree with the uh, witness who has asked for a definition of the baby boomers because I feel that great swathes of people, particularly working-class people, are completely absent from everybody's argument, and you seem to be talking about the 5% of baby boomers who went to university in those days. Right, excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, and Emily, we certainly want to come in on that because I heard you earlier on related matters. The gentleman who is now got the microphone. Hi, my name is Robert. Um, I've got a, a question about climate change, which is 
to do with the fact that it could not be seen as part of a, the latest and clearest expression of Western imperialism, which is seeking to uh, prevent developing countries from growing in a way that is best for them and purporting to put some kind of moral superiority on that position. We've, we've developed ourselves and we're seeking to pull up the ladder behind us. And is not there as a very clear sense that we are just uh, trying to put ourselves in a moral superior position to a whole area of the world which is going to grow. China's building one world-class coal factory every two weeks. And uh, the idea that we are going to stop them doing that is ridiculous and, uh, and also a little bit offensive. Okay, thanks, Robert. A lot to reflect on there. I'm going to go over to this side first. And I'm going to give Emma an opportunity. You don't have to use it yeah. to come in on any of that. Okay, well... Um Talking about working class baby boomers, I'm very sorry if we've given the impression that we've only been talking about the um, 10% of baby boomers who went to university. But um, um, I'm, I'm very aware that um, uh, the, the group of baby boomers sort of in the professions... Um, are coming up to retirement uh, with inadequate pensions, and that is in um, a, a relatively benign climate where they could have built up savings um, before the recession hit, which also actually goes back to the other question at the beginning about pensions. If you mess around too much with people's pensions... You discourage people from saving. And if nobody is saving for their pensions, then everybody becomes dependent on the welfare state. Which, and pensions already cost absolute billions. If you remove the incentive to save, which lifts people um, into self you know, being independent from the state, apart from... Uh, their state pension then um, that would be an appalling state of affairs so it's a very very naive suggestion Thanks Emma uh, Orient, do you want to come in before we go to the other side? No, you okay? Uh, Shiddon and Bob I imagine wants to deal with certainly at least the last one but Shiddon do you want to come in first? Well, should I just do the clarification on the age groups we should have perhaps laid this out before but baby boomers are born from 1945 um, Wikipedia says 1946 I disagree um, and 1965. Um, so the oldest of them now is currently 69 that age. Uh, and the youngest of them is 49.50. So that's the age bracket we're talking about. Most of them aren't pensioners, uh, um, but uh, they're becoming pensioners, obviously, and politicians are very mindful of that fact. Um, the next generation is born, Generation X is 65 to 1980, uh, and then why uh, the generation I come from uh, just snuck in right at the, bit, at the end, 1980 to 1995. So the oldest is, oh, now my maths will fail me, uh, 34, uh, and the youngest is somewhat younger. <laughs> so I'm just going to deal with two very quick points. First, the uh, question of whether uh, 
Um, acting against climate change as a new form of imperialism. Well, what we do see from the impacts of climate change, such as changes in extreme weather, is that it's poor and vulnerable people who suffer most from the consequences. And indeed, most developing countries recognise that they face a much bigger threat from climate change because they're more vulnerable to the impact than the developed countries. Indeed, China and its uh, coal-fired power stations, the Chinese are under no illusion how the use of coal is damaging their economy and their well-being. You only have to look at the pictures from Beijing over the last few days that the Chinese understand very much that the emissions from their coal-fired power stations not only causing a long-term threat through climate change, but causing a short-term health problem through their local air pollution. So I I don't know about whether you've talked to many people in China but I don't think there are many people in China who think that uh, climate change is somehow uh, some invention by uh, the imperialist uh, West. On the issue of what it is that we should be doing well if we want to avoid the worst impacts of climate change then um, governments have already uh, reached the agreement that it should be about giving ourselves about a 50-50 chance of avoiding global warming of more than 2 degrees. That would require us to cut global annual emissions by about 50% by 2050, which we can do if we invest about 1% of global GDP a year in converting away from dirty growth to clean growth. And that's why I think we should be confiscating the wealth of the baby boomers who've grown rich on dirty growth and invested in clean growth to protect future generations. Brilliant. Right, we're going to go, we're moving to voting, but we're going to take another round. We've got the voting system, we're going to take a while. There's somebody with a friend who's drawing attention to him. Did you have a question? No, you're not that kind of guy. You're a facilitator. No, not yet, not yet. There's a person who has his hand up here with a hat on. They look both to be Generation Z, so is there anybody? <laughs> We've got another Generation Z. I suspect a Polly Hill. We're going to go to you as well. We need some baby boomers, but sir, start. Name, comment, question. Hello. Hi, Hello. Minute. Hi. Uh, my name is Gabriel, and this question is related to, I guess, uh, intergenerational responsibility and the idea of investing and uh, where we're supposed to put investments into renewable energy. Um, and I think my question has to do with how can you invest in renewable energy and at the same time have investments in fossil fuels and, for instance, LSC's endowment or different pension funds from the city and whether that plays some part um, in addressing this, I guess, uh, discretion or indiscretions of the baby boomer generation. Okay, brilliant. That sounds like one for Bob, actually. But we'll, we'll go to you, sir. Uh, I guess the question's more about... Sorry, Jonathan. I guess the question is more about um, really... In generations past, there's always only been a few people that have benefited from the system. Over the last hundred years, that few has grown to be significantly more. Can you really blame the baby boomers for being the generation that vastly benefited um, more from the uh, riches that were on the planet than the previous generations when it was held by maybe only feudal powers? Right, it's a nice one on the prosecution point, actually. There's a lady who's got her hand up on the way up, uh, just here, and then we take the, I suspect, Polly Hill. I'm not sure. We'll see. Uh, Madam. Hi, uh, my name's Fiona. Um, I'm sort of surprised that a word that I haven't heard much this evening is individualism, which many would see as a sort of a hallmark characteristic of the baby boom generation. And some of that's very positive in terms of freedom of expression and loosening of some 
bonds that may have been seen as oppressive, but on the other hand, from people of my generation who I think I was once told that if I listened to Talking Heads when I was a student, I'm Generation X and that's me, um, we sort of see it in terms of uh, at times an individualisation of the benefits for the baby boom generation and the socialisation of the costs. I'd just like some comments on that. Brilliant. It's kind of, it's almost like an intervention, so we see if they react, but thank you very much, Fiona. And the last one in this round, uh, your name and quick comment, observation or question. Hi, um, my name's Neyma, and um, my sort of question is about um, the climate and the environment, um, and is directed towards prosecution. Um, we've heard that the baby boomers are um, really to blame for the... Um, the baby boomers are blamed for, to blame for the damage... For, damage to the environment, but um, actually generations X and Y have become accustomed to going on long holidays abroad and getting food and vegetables imported from different countries and Mm -hmm. using cars and public transport, etc. So do you not think that it would be fair to blame generations X and Y for the actions that they're doing now as much as you are putting the baby boomers on trial for the... um, decisions and policies they put in place in the past. At the end of the day, even if they're not the politicians at the moment, generations um, X and Y can make a change as much as everyone else. We've seen from the Arabs praying that young people um, you know, are as much responsible. We're all, in it, we're all in it together, and at the end of the day, the baby boomers, generations X and Y, have messed it up for us, really. Thanks, Nima. I think you got... Yeah, yeah. I think these are mainly shipping Bob, actually, so give it up as you want. Yeah, so um, let me deal with the investments issue. Well, um, you've identified one of the key characteristics of the baby boomer generation, which is reckless risk-taking. Not only are they dumping lots of greenhouse gas pollution into the atmosphere as if it would have no impact, but we've invented a financial system in which investments only take account of short-term gains and not the long-term risks. If I were an investor these days, I would be thinking about whether investing in stocks in a fossil fuel company represented a wise um, investment because if you do the calculation, I mentioned about reducing global annual emissions by 50% by 2050. If you do the calculation of current reserves of fossil fuels, if you burnt everything we knew at the moment, you'd more than double, have more than doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or released through emissions than would be allowable under that 50%. So reckless risk-taking is a system that the baby boomers have invented, and what we really need is a, uh, a less risky approach uh, through generations X and Y, which brings me on to this issue of whether X and Y share some of the blame. Yes, I think they share some of the blame, but I don't think that lets the baby boomers off the hook. The fact is that the um, baby boomer generation has had plenty of opportunities to turn us off the path of dirty growth, It started after the Second World War, and uh, one crucial moment I would draw to your attention, the 1970 oil crisis, when the price of oil went uh, skyrocketed. That was a moment at which we could have started investing much more in alternatives to fossil fuels. The baby boomer generation decided they weren't going to do that, and we've become locked in more. So that's why I think the baby boomer generation... Uh, bear more responsibility than subsequent generations for the situation we're in. 
I, I think the jury is coming to a conclusion, so we've got a quick one from you. Okay, very quick then, answer. Um, uh, question three and four together. Um, yes, X and Y are more, I think, individualistic than the baby boomers before them. And yes, their habits don't bode well in terms of uh, their effect on climate change, but we're not the ones on trial here, thank God. Um, uh, now, I have an answer for question two, um, which I've written down, but I can't remember the question. What was it? Was after this gentleman, what was question two? Does anyone remember? Sorry. Uh, uh, if Jonathan. If it's fair that babies are being blamed for getting the wealth when they're just... Yes, that's right. The, what, that, I think the answer to the question is, is that the baby boomers, um, from, they started from a very deprived position. It's true, when they were children, they were indeed drinking tons of cod liver oil, and it was terrible. Um, I don't mean to undermine it, but it, it really it was actually very bad. But the, the, it, during their life, their living standards have risen um, absolutely dramatically, to the point where 75% of them now own their own home, they have pensions, they're secure, they're the middle class, and it's not been repeated. And I think we should hear from the other side, because we have to go to a vote. Uh, Or do you have anything to say? Um, Well, just as a closing remark, um, you know, if you think it's enough to convict on the basis that people have voted for a particular individual, then I think you need to remember that voting is enough to make you guilty, and this is what extremists use to justify violence against the British public. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, look, there's a serious intent behind this, and we need to just reflect for a moment on these charges. You were given them on the way in. I'm not going to read them out again now, but you need to glance at them. And you need to produce one answer, and uh, not on each charge, one answer. And you can use one of these mechanisms, and the jury will not know what you've decided, but you will. And they're going to show up immediately, and it's guilt beyond reasonable doubt. So the question that is put, in all seriousness, based on the various criteria set out here, is whether or not the baby boomer generation is guilty as charged. Uh, you may now deploy whatever devices you have to produce an outcome. Apparently, you may not do so. You need to wait a minute. <laughs> Apparently, you have to, I think it's called, the baby boom is called it logging. <laughs> I shall police the council to make sure they're not voting. <laughs> Right, it should be ready. <laughs> it was very good. Thank you. The whole thing is incredibly good. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the speech was marvellous. Yeah, it was tremendous. Yeah. I didn't agree with it, but it was marvellous. We're in the job. Yeah, I like it too. Now you see the response is going out. We're keeping it open for another couple of minutes. Let me see. What's going on? We've had about 200. We're trying to get to about 250. Yeah. <laughs> Someone from China's persistent today, you've got to desperately go for it and tell you. 
Members of the jury, uh, have you reached your verdict? Foreman? And that verdict? (laughs) (laughs) 
we have. <laughs> and what is your verdict? Our verdict is not guilty. By a majority, nine of you. Ten to two. Right. Thank you. Thank you, jury. Uh, Clark? Uh, Madam Justice, have I been brought into the frame by my lady? Yes, you have. Uh, These are your final remarks. These are my final (laughs) remarks. Did anybody else detect a hint of aggression? (laughs) Uh, Members of the jury, you would be interested to know what the result was in our audience voting. (laughs) The uh, audience, 51% of them said not guilty, and 49 of them said guilty. So we have, in both cases had a common decision, albeit very tight here, less tight there. Uh, what we need to do now, to be honest with you, is just thank a few people, and you need to, I'm glad you're here, and we need to do it, because uh, we have all these institutions down here, and uh, I made a bit of a joke about it at the start, but actually we're indebted to them all. And they're all uh, LSE, with one exception. LSE, Department of Law, Institute of Public Affairs, LSE Literary Festival, and the Grantham which was so maligned earlier on. Uh, But actually, I just, I mean, it's not just because I'm a member. I want to signal out Matrix, who have supported the event as well and made it possible. So we we, we think it's great that they were able to do so. Uh, What you've seen, I was thrilled about this, because there is a subtext here, which is, this is partly the law department, as you can see, is to introduce you into the nature of the forensic method. And it is a much hidden method, because it takes place in these rather research environments in which there is a sort of special language which the lawyers have become familiar with. And what we've exposed here is the extraordinary quality of legal advocacy. Extraordinary quality. I was gripped by it myself and I couldn't even see that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had on the other side, we had Zara here uh, and Richard. And over here we had Alice, uh, Richard and Eloise. And we are deeply grateful to them uh, for having done this, to have taken it so seriously and to have planned it so well. It was fantastic. And they couldn't have done it without the witnesses. Now, I think a special uh, gratitude to the witnesses because uh, this hinged on a conceit, which was that we were both a trial and not a trial. And it required people with the guts and bravery, as well as articulacy, to submit to cross-examination from among the best barristers in the country, from the, the two chambers, I'd say we'd agree, wouldn't we, the best chambers in the country. <laughs> Brick court chambers over here and matrix chambers over here. And that took real guts. And I want to therefore signal out Bob, and look how they abuse poor old Bob. I think he can take a ship, who is fantastic, and Oriana and Emma. And I think they need a round of applause, don't they? Thank you. Thank you.